have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 for our brothers and sisters from Current Church, or if you're visiting with us, we have been uh, going through a study of the book of Hebrews, and this morning we arrive at Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll be looking at verses 3 through 17, which is the word that Sarah just shared and read for us. And what we'll be learning about this morning is uh, we'll be learning about the discipline of the Lord. The discipline of the Lord. And as a father of uh, four young boys, I've had plenty of recent experience and opportunity to uh, discipline, all right? I know kind of what it means to be a father that disciplines his children. However, probably even more so, uh, it wasn't too long ago when I was a young boy and I had plenty of experiencing uh, of this loving, gracious discipline from my parents. Uh, my older sister, they would always tell me that she kind of disciplined herself, so most of their discipline was saved for me. And so I got a lot of experience in that regard. Now, uh, yeah, thank you, thank you. Now, now discipline, all right, now discipline, it looks, it looked, it looks different with each of my boys. Uh, it looks different for each child, and it, and it looks really different in each stage of their development, right? I mean, when they're really young and when they're a toddler, sometimes discipline looks like a slap on the wrist and a stern no when they're going to touch something hot or something that could harm them or, or you know, sticking something in an electrical outlet, right? There needs to be kind of an immediate no and and for them to understand that that could cause them harm. Uh, when they grow a little bit older and, and they've, they've obviously disobeyed or something like that, sometimes it looks like a timeout. As they get older, sometimes it looks like maybe taking away a privilege from them, taking away screen time, taking away dessert, maybe adding a chore or a task for them to do. But what is common to all discipline is that discipline involves some type of pain or discomfort. And our passage of scripture this morning, it speaks directly to that reality. In Hebrews 12, verse 11, it says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And while this morning, the main point of this morning's text, okay, is not necessarily parents how to discipline their kids, okay? That's not where we're going. It does sort of assume or imply that, that fathers would show grace and love to their children by disciplining them. And so if you want counsel on how to discipline your kids, I mean, there's plenty of great parents in here that could give you some counsel. However, the main point of this passage this morning is helping us to see how the discipline of the Lord will, yes, in the moment, seem painful. But if, in light of Scripture, we have a proper perspective of it, we see the purpose behind it, then we will be able to enjoy and pursue the fruit that it produces. All right? And so we have to come to God's Word and, and uh, try to understand the discipline of the Lord in light of God's Word, to let God's Word give us a proper perspective of it, and to see God's purposes behind it. And then we will hopefully be freed to joyfully pursue the fruit that it will produce in our lives and in the life of our church. The title of the sermon this morning is Fruitful Discipline. Fruitful Discipline. For this is the type of discipline that we receive from the Lord. It is discipline that produces good fruit. Good fruit. Back in chapter 2 of Hebrews, 
We have already learned that Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, he has brought many sons and daughters to glory. Meaning that, that yes, it is by God's grace through, through faith in Jesus that not only are we justified, not only are we declared right with God and now have a right standing with God, but also by grace through faith in Jesus, we have been adopted by God and we can now call him our father. In Christ, we are now sons and daughters of God. And church, that is a glorious truth with massive implications and applications for our lives, and that, that we are now sons and daughters of the King. And if God is our Father, then what we see here in this passage is that out of His love and out of an outpouring of His grace, He disciplines His kids for our good. You'll remember our author, the author of Hebrews, is writing to a group of Christians, many of them who have come out of Judaism. And they've already experienced some sort of hardship or persecution and pain, but he knows that more is coming their way. And so starting back in chapter 10 of Hebrews, he starts encouraging them and, and giving them a call for endurance. He knows they're going to need to have a faith that perseveres. And we saw that a true faith is a faith that perseveres. And then throughout chapter 11, right, the great hall of faith, we see example after example of what a faith that perseveres looked like in the lives of real people. And last week then, as we started into chapter 12, we saw that, therefore, in light of these Old Testament saints who have finished the race of faith ahead of us, he calls them and he calls us to lay aside all the things that are weighing us down and keeping us from running hard after Christ. He calls us to, to throw off and get rid of all the sin that might be entangling us and keeping us from running after Christ. And he calls us to fix our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who is now seated at the right hand of God. And now picking up that exhortation in chapter 12, that call to persevere in the faith, he switches from a running illustration to now a family illustration. Because in order for us to persevere in the faith, we must have a right perspective of the discipline of the Lord we must understand God's purposes behind it so that then we can joyfully pursue the fruit that it produces. So let's ask, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask for his help and we'll jump into this passage of scripture. Father God, we do thank you for today. God, what a, what a privilege it is to be able to open up your word to hold your truth, God, in our hands, to be able to speak it and proclaim it to one another. And so, God, we ask that, that we would not get in the way, God, of, of anything that you might want to speak to us this morning. Lord, I ask that you would help me be faithful to this passage of Scripture, that I would teach it rightly and clearly. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would enable our, our hearts to receive this word, that it would take deep root in our hearts, that it would bear fruit in our lives. Lord, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see your glory. Lord, may we make much of you, and may we treasure you above all things as we hear your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. All right, Hebrews 12, verse 3. Here we go. God's word says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. 
All right, let's, let's stop there for a second. Anytime that we need to have a right perspective, and anytime we need to see something clearly and to have light shine upon it and to illuminate it and for us to see it as we should, we can look no further than looking to Jesus and considering his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. The, the original recipients of this letter, some of them, they, they had experienced initial joy of coming to Christ, right? But that joy was now starting to fade as they were starting to feel some pain. Like when they first came to Christ, there was this great joy and freedom that finally the promised Messiah, the one that they and their families had been waiting for, was finally here. But now in their walk with Christ, now things had started to get hard. Now they had started getting kicked out of the synagogue. Now some of their family won't talk to them. Now they've lost their jobs and their family businesses. Now some of them are being imprisoned. Now some of the people they used to go to church with are walking away from the faith. And while they experienced joy at first, now they are feeling pain. And we don't like to feel pain. And therefore some of them are abandoning the faith. And they're walking away. And so here our author reminds them. He says, hey, essentially he's saying, put your pain in perspective. Consider Jesus, who not only endured the hostility of people, but also endured the wrath of God being poured out on him as he shed his blood for you. And so he reminds them, hey, you haven't gotten to the point of shedding your blood yet, right? That, that might someday come to believers, right? Sometimes Christians are called to be martyrs. Some are persecuted. Some are, are killed for their faith. But he says, hey, that hasn't happened to you yet. But even if it does, you're not going to suffer like Jesus did. He had to satisfy the wrath of God, the, 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 take the punishment that your sin deserved. And so put your pain in perspective. Look to Jesus and let Jesus put your pain in perspective. You might have some hard days coming your way if you're in Christ, but you don't have God's wrath coming your way. Put your pain in perspective. And church, we need that same exhortation this morning. We must look to the cross and we must put our pain in perspective. You see, when our eyes are not on Christ and we only look at our pain and our circumstances, we have a tendency to allow our emotions to blow our pain out of proportion to reality. For example, if you were to slap a toddler's wrist as they were about to stick something in an electrical outlet, they will likely look up at you with big, watery eyes, like you have just offended them down deep to their core. And they will burst into tears like the world has come crashing down on them and they've never experienced such pain before. How dare you put, slap their hand away from that electrical outlet? Our emotions will blow our pain out of proportion if we lose sight of Christ and his cross. We will feel like the entire world is crashing down in, us, in on us. We will sink into the pit of self-pity. We will develop a woe-is-me mentality. And then sadly, we often develop a bitterness or a resentment towards God and others for not meeting our expectations because many of us have expectations of him that he will never allow us ex to experience any pain. And when we do, we grow bitter 
and we resent him. But church, first of all, I know many of you in here, and most of you have not experienced the type of pain and persecution that many brothers and sisters have around the world. Some of you might someday, but even if more intense pain and persecution comes upon you, may you look to Christ and consider him, and I promise you when you do that, that your pain will be put in the right perspective. For it is when we look to Christ that we come to understand that our pain is not God's punishment towards us. But instead, pain can be used by God to discipline us. You see, if we lose sight of Christ, we can at times start to think that the pain we are experiencing is God punishing us. And here's where we need to know and appreciate kind of the difference between discipline and punishment. All right, we've talked about this before, but discipline is corrective in nature. Punishment is enforcing justice, righting a wrong. And listen, in our sin, we deserved both. We deserved both discipline and punishment, but thanks be to God, Jesus went to the cross and took our punishment. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The penalty of sin has been paid. However, as long as sin still remains in this world and as long as it's still a part of our lives, discipline will be required in order for God to provide us some good and loving correction and training. This is why, Britt, when we are helping our boys understand the difference, we, we want to be very clear with the words we use. We want to make sure they know that we are disciplining them, not punishing them. When we take them aside to talk about what they have done, we want them to understand that, hey, Jesus has taken your punishment. However, he has also tasked us with disciplining you for your good and correcting you and turning you back to to his ways. You see, it is God's mercy that now no punishment remains for those who are in Christ. And it is God's grace that he still disciplines his kids. It is his mercy that now no punishment re remains for those who are in Christ. And it is his grace that he still disciplines his kids. And so what does, this, what, does that, what does this mean for us, right? What, what does this mean for those whose faith is in Christ? That what this means is that when you experience pain, God is not punishing you. Look, look to Jesus, put your pain, let him put your pain in perspective. But go, listen, God's not punishing you. He's not getting even with you. He's not settling a score. He's not pouring out his wrath on you. The pain you are experiencing is not karma. It is not what goes around comes around. The pain is, a, is not a sign that God doesn't love you or that he's abandoned you or that he's stopped taking care of you. But could it be that he is using that pain to graciously teach you and train you and discipline you could your pain in light of the cross be God's grace to you? Could seeing his discipline as his grace be the proper perspective to have? And I'm just asking questions at this point, all right? Maybe so. 
but, but what's his purpose behind it, right? So we've kind of got some perspective. We've got this kind of grace uh, perspective, but what's his purpose behind it? Like if we're really going to be convinced to joyfully pursue the fruit that discipline produces, I think we have to understand what his purpose behind it is, and we see it now in verse 5. Look with me at Hebrews 12, verse 5. It says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Essentially, right, have you forgotten that in Christ you are now God's kids? That, that's our role in this whole fruitful discipline discussion, right? In order for us to understand his purposes in his discipline, we must remember our identity. We are God's adopted sons and daughters. And he's going to now remind them of a proverb from Proverbs 3, verse 11. This is what he quotes in Hebrews. He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Okay, meaning don't consider the discipline of the Lord as being insignificant. Don't take it lightly, right? Don't brush it off as if there was nothing to learn in it. It's important. It's significant, It's God's grace to you. When you experience any type of discipline or training from the Lord, it's important. It would be good for you to really stop and pause and meditate what God might be teaching you through this. Don't take it lightly. And not only does he say don't take it lightly, he encourages them to not lose heart when they experience it. Right? Aren't those both the temptations we have when experiencing pain or discipline to either take it lightly, just try to avoid it, get rid of it, numb it? Or we grow discouraged by it. But he says, do not lose heart. Don't be overwhelmed by it. Why? Look at verse 6. See God's motivation behind it. Verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Right? He says, don't, don't take this discipline lightly. Don't be el- overwhelmed by it. Don't think that God has abandoned you in it. No, he's treating you as sons and daughters. Like, it is, it is the unloving, it is the neglectful father who doesn't discipline his kids. But God disciplines you, not because he's disappointed by you, not because you embarrassed him in the checkout line, not because he's upset with you. God disciplines you ultimately because he loves you. Verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, and here's here's the purpose behind it, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. One of the great lies of the enemy is that God's ultimate goal for you above everything else is your personal happiness instead of your personal holiness. And as with every lie of the enemy, there's a little bit of truth to it. 
Just, just twisted a little bit, right? Now, now listen, I, I do think that, there, that the greatest joy and happiness to be had in the world is found in God. And so I'm not proposing that Christians should not be happy or, or should be joyless people or anything like that. But listen, when personal happiness is the ultimate aim, we end up missing out on holiness and happiness. But his purpose for us, through his discipline is that we would share in his holiness. Meaning that our hearts would be empowered by the grace and work of the Holy Spirit, that our hearts and affections would be set apart, would be holy for God, and would become more like him. Jesus said in John 15, verse 10, we'll have up on the screen, Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Right. Jesus does seem to be concerned about our joy and he does seem to be concerned about our happiness, which is what? Which, excuse me, which is why that lie rings a little bit of truth to it. However, you see, it is not found. That joy, that deep happiness is not found apart from holiness. It is found through holiness. It is found in holiness. It is found when our hearts are set apart for him and becoming more like him and loving what he loves and enjoying what he enjoys. And I think a really good, concise summary statement of this John Piper has used in one of his sermons, we'll have up on the screen, he says, holiness is the condition of the heart in which God is our greatest happiness. Holiness is not opposed to happiness. Happiness is found in holiness. Holiness is the condition of the heart in which God is our greatest happiness and joy. And so I do think that God wants you to experience joy and happiness, but he knows that you never will apart from him and apart from sharing in his holiness. And so he lovingly and graciously disciplines us so that our joy may be full. Now you might be thinking, well, hey, I'm not sure every time I experience pain or discomfort, I'm not sure that's necessarily the discipline of the Lord. And, and here's where it would seem that Hebrews 12 paints a, a bit a broader definition of the discipline of the Lord than what we would naturally think of first. Uh, at first. You see, the discipline of the Lord is more than just corrective in nature. Yes, God disciplines to correct, but in addition to correction, God disciplines us to protect. God disciplines to teach. And God disciplines to train us. And here, here's what I mean, right? We mainly think of discipline as just being correction, right? Like we're doing something we shouldn't do. God disciplines us in order to correct us. And I, I think we should probably think of that first. I think that's, that's a part of it. But the Lord also disciplines us in order to protect us from going down certain roads that we might go down in the future. Now, we talked a couple of weeks ago about Paul's thorn in the flesh, right? And how God had allowed a messenger of Satan to afflict Paul in order that he would not grow conceited and prideful. Now, the thorn was not sent to Paul because Paul had some secret sin that no one else knew about. But instead, it was God's grace to protect Paul 
from growing prideful and to instead stay dependent upon the empowering and all-sufficient grace of God. Paul wasn't already going down a road he shouldn't be going down, but, but the Lord saw that he could at some point, and he used discipline to prevent and protect him from ever going down that road. And I just, I, I wonder how much more we could glorify God. I wonder how many roads God has protected us from going down. The discipline of the Lord is, yes, used for correction, but it's also used for protection. God has allowed pain and discipline in your life to prevent you from going down roads you maybe never knew you were going to be tempted to go down, but God knew, and he has kept you from them. God will discipline us to prevent us from trusting and putting our faith in any other person, place, or thing other than him. He oftentimes will knock out everything that we have been leaning our weight on besides him because he knows in the end that those things are not going to hold. Last summer, I had an unfortunate uh, a span of days where it seemed like at mom and dad's house, in the matter of a week, uh, I broke three chairs or benches just by sitting on them, Right? Now, if anything will make you feel self-conscious about your weight, it's breaking three items of furniture in the same week, right? You start to reevaluate your life, you know, what's happening to me. But eventually it got to the point where it's like, okay, I'm not sitting on anything else here. There was like one chair that I knew was pretty sturdy, right? I'm either going to stand, I'm going to sit on the ground, or I'm going to sit on that one chair, and some of you, you've had seasons of life like that, where just everything you've tried to put your weight on, it seems like God has knocked out from under you. Like you were really leaning on your health, and he said, nope, that's not going to be what you lean on. Maybe you were leaning on a job, or you were leaning on the number in your bank account, or you were leaning on the stability of your family, or you were leaning on the faith of your parents, or you were leaning on just just a... a I don't know, anything else in life you're leaning on, and God says, no. And in the moment that feels painful, in the moment that feels sort of mean, like, God, why are you to keep knocking this out from under me? But he's ultimately doing that to protect you. That's God's grace. Those things were never going to hold you in the long run. It's only Christ. It's only faith in him. It's only putting your entire weight and trust and faith on him that will hold. All other ground is sinking sand, right? And so not only is discipline used for correction, but it's used for protection and prevention, but it's also used for teaching and training. Think of Job, right? Think of Job. Some of his friends wrongly assumed that he was experiencing all this pain and suffering because of some sin of his. And yet that was not why he was experiencing the pain, but instead God was teaching him and us more about himself. In Job chapter 42, verses 5 and 6, which we'll have up on the screen, after Job has gone through all this pain and suffering, after he's had to put on his big boy pants and, and, and receive this line of questioning from the Lord in Job 40, right? Which if you're ever feeling prideful, you ever need to grow in humility, go read that line of questioning from the Lord. And at the end of all that, Job in Job 42, verse 5 says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. 
Like I had, I had known some things about you before all this, but now I see you. Now I behold you. Now I have learned more about you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And so whatever pain or whatever discipline you might be experiencing right now, could God be teaching you more about himself through that? Or maybe he's not just teaching, but maybe he's training you for something in the future. As we raise our boys, I want them to develop disciplines of, of reading God's word, of knowing how to pray, of studying and learning and growing in wisdom. Right? We are instilling discipline in their lives, making sure that they do their schoolwork, making sure they do their, that they study, making sure that we push them physically to run and jump and climb and play. And some of those things are sometimes painful and uncomfortable as we are instilling dis discipline in their lives. But we do that not because they've necessarily done anything wrong, but because we are trying to train them for what God might have for them in the future. In J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, he reflects some about God being a loving and gracious father who disciplines us. He reflects on the fact that royal children in our world oftentimes have to undergo extra training and discipline, which other kids don't have to go through, in order for them to be prepared and fit for their high calling. Right? If you've seen the crown or seen other things about royalty, yes, there's some privileges, but there's also all this extra training that those royal kids have to go through to know how they're going to carry out their calling. And J.I. Packer says, it is the same with the children of the king of kings. And he quotes, I think this is such a great quote we could remember, take with us this week. He says, he is training you for what awaits you. He is training you for what awaits you. And some of you, listen, I'm convinced that you've got some really big things awaiting you because God has been training you hard. And so whether it's God's correcting, whether it's his protecting, whether he's teaching or training, we, we must remember that we are his children and that his discipline is motivated by his love and it is for our good. But we can be honest and say still at times it's painful. It's painful. Hebrews 12, look back at Hebrews 12, verse 11. I love that scripture, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't try to gloss over this. It speaks to reality, all right? For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. And all God's people said, amen. It does. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so, so far, right, we've tried to put discipline in its right perspective. We've tried to see it as the grace of God in our lives. We've started to see some of his purposes behind it to correct and protect and teach and train. And now we are going to be called to do some things, right? Which is usually always how the, the, uh, uh, God's word works, right? Here is what is true. Now here is what you must do, right? Verse 12, therefore... Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Signs of fatigue and fear. 
verse 13, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or, or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. If I could summarize that a bit, and then we'll break it down a little bit more. In light of what God has done for us, this is what we are to do. We must pursue both peace and holiness. We must pursue peace and holiness. Now, there will be times, due to other people involved in your life or in this world, where peace will not always be possible. God's word says in Romans 12, verse 18, it says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But here we are called, we must pursue peace with one another. And so listen, if we live in this community of faith long enough, if we do life in this church family long enough, we will intentionally and unintentionally hurt one another. We will offend one another. We will be misunderstood by one another. We will assume wrongly of one another. But we cannot give the enemy a foothold to create division amongst us, but instead we must pursue peace with one another. The, the biblical idea and concept of peace or shalom, it's the, it's the idea of wholeness of bringing together what was once separated, of picking up the pieces of brokenness that sin has caused, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, bringing them together in Christ. This is what we are called to pursue. We are called to pursue peace, wholeness, togetherness with one another. And we're also called to pursue holiness. The Puritans used to call this gospel holiness. And they called it gospel holiness as kind of a shorthand for, for referring to authentic Christian living that was motivated by love out of a gratitude towards God. And they called it that in contrast to those who might, on the outward external appearance, try to appear holy, who out of duty and legalism tried to earn God's favor and appeared to be right with him, however their hearts were far from him. And that's not God, what God's word is calling us. He's not calling us to appear holy. He's calling us to gospel holiness, to authentic Christian living that is motivated by a love for God and a gratitude for the gospel. But there will be some whose hearts will remain far from the Lord. And that's really what verses 15 through 17 are describing. And verse 15 gives us an instruction on a little bit of a warning. It says, see to it. And that's a word or a phrase that's describing be on the lookout for one another. Be overseers of one another. And make sure that our hearts 
are not missing out on enjoying and experiencing the grace of God. You see, what happens when we are not enjoying and experiencing the grace of God is that a root of bitterness can spring up in a congregation. And that, that phrase, root of bitterness, it's a quote from Deuteronomy 29, which we'll have up on the screen. Anytime you see a quote from the Old Testament, go back and, and read it in its context, because while it might be tempting for us to just preach on the root of bitterness, or, or that idea of resentment that's built up towards God and others, actually in the context of Deuteronomy 29, it's referring to more than just bitterness. So it's not wrong to preach about bitterness on this passage, but, but it's referring to even more. It's a broader root here. So in Deuteronomy 29, verse 18, Moses is addressing the nation of Israel's renewing the covenant with the Lord. He says, Beware lest there be among you a man or a woman, a clan or a tribe, whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware. Look out for one another. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. And now verse 19 is going to define this root. Verse 19, one who, when he hears the word of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Now, now here's what that is meaning, all right? The root of bitterness seems to be defined here in Deuteronomy, and it really does match an overall theme we've seen through the book of Hebrews, is that there will be some who feel a false sense of security because they are a part of a community of faith, but they continue to walk in stubbornness of heart. And so this is really scary for church people. This is the person who thinks that because they go to church or because they raised a hand or walked an aisle at youth camp that they are now right with God even though their heart is far from Him. Even though they have walked in stubbornness of heart their entire lives. They have stubborn hearts. They have not submitted themselves to the discipline of the Lord. They have no desire to pursue peace and holiness. They have never experienced or enjoyed the grace of God, but instead they pursue satisfying their sexual and physical appetites like Esau. And we learn from his example that they too are running out of time to repent as their hearts grow harder and harder towards the Lord and more and more stubborn towards him. And that is the root of bitterness that spreads like a disease through the church until a whole church is full of people who confess Jesus with their mouth, but their hearts are far from him. And God's word says, watch out for one another. That Watch out that you too don't miss, on experience, miss out on experiencing and enjoying the grace of God. That root is contagious. It produces bitter fruit. And church, may that not be said of us. May that not be said of us. May by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit that never be said of us. May we look out for one another. May we pursue peace and holiness alongside one another. May the words that are on our mouths match the meditations of our heart. And may we submit ourselves to the Lord's discipline. And may we pursue peace and gospel holiness. 
Now, I want to close with this image that we get from Hebrews chapter 12. Look back at Hebrews 12, uh, 12, 12, excuse me. He says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your, se- for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather heal. You see, the discipline of the Lord puts paralyzed parts of the body of Christ back into socket. Verse 13 is painting the image of a dislocated body part. I'm not sure if anyone here has had a dislocated body part. Uh, For most of you know, I used to work in an emergency room, and that used to be one of my favorite things to see. I mean, not not for the person, obviously, but... For myself, it was one of the most fun uh, kind of compl- you know, problems that would come in that I could provide a solution to. You see, when something is dislocated, when something is out of socket, it's essentially paralyzed. It's not functioning like it should, and it needs to be healed. And the reason that I liked healing this uh, or helping, you know, uh, solve the dislocated body part because almost immediately someone would regain full function. One of the reasons as well that I liked dealing with it was because I had learned a maneuver from someone much older and wiser than me that really allowed me to put a shoulder back into place really quickly, all right? And so uh, that is something I have missed since not being in the medical field. If anyone dislocates a shoulder, please call me first before you go, all right? It'll be fun. I'll be a little rusty, all right, but it'll be good. But you see, what usually happens in a busy emergency room, all right, if you come in with a a, a dislocated shoulder, you're going to have to go through the whole check-in process, right? You're going to get, the nurse is going to take your vitals. The registration people are going to come in and ask, you know, how satisfied you are with your care, and you'll just look down at your shoulder, and they'll try to mark you down for something. Then you'll get a provider that comes in, does an exam. They might do an x-ray. They might start an IV. They might give you a little pain medicine. Eventually, then, you might have to sign a a waiver for conscious sedation. They'll kind of make you a little sleepy. Then they'll put it back into place. Then they'll take a post x-ray. Really, really you're going to sit there for over two hours with your arm out of socket, okay? And it was always so frustrating. This is a quick fix. And if I could come into a room and someone would trust me. Now, that's, that's what it would take, right? So it would take someone to trust me, all right? And I'd sit down and they'd ask me, uh, uh, they would say, okay, is this going to hurt? And I'd say, this is going to help. <laughs> Which is my way of saying, of course this is going to hurt. You're in an emergency room. All options have pain involved. You're hurting right now. That is actually happening right now. Of course this is going to hurt, but this is going to help. This is the best and quickest path to healing, but you have to trust me. And you have to accept that pain is part of the process, and you have to not fight me as I put a little downward pressure and rotate this. It's going to get a little worse, and then in a few seconds, it's going to be a lot better. But you see, we always want to fight the pain. We always want to fight or push the discipline off till tomorrow. We always want to ne- ne- negotiate out of it, right? Or delay the healing as long as possible because we are so f- afraid of any type of pain or discomfort. 
And so we oftentimes delay this pursuit of peace and holiness, right? I'm giving you the call to go out and by the power of God, right, the power of the Holy Spirit in you to go pursue peace and holiness. And many of us will go out of here and say, that sounds kind of hard. Maybe tomorrow. We want to delay it because we don't want to experience the pain in the short term to get the joyful fruit in the long term. And some of you, this is you right now. You are the dislocated extremity on the body of Christ. You are not functioning as you should. And you need to be healed. You need to submit yourself to the Lord and pray a courageous prayer like, Lord, whatever it takes, I trust you. Just heal me. Put me back into right relationship with you. Put me back into socket. Help me function as I was created to function. But that's a scary prayer to say, Lord, do whatever it takes, but heal me. That takes you leaning into the pain. That takes you not taking his discipline lightly, not counting it as insignificant, but really trusting him that he is doing a gracious work on you through the pain, that he is correcting you, he is protecting you, he is teaching you, he is training you. And you need to pray today, Lord, do whatever it takes. I trust you. Submit to his discipline in your life. Some of you, God has given you eyes to see your brother or sister that is out of joint right now. And that can be really difficult, a difficult place to be in. We know we're supposed to remove the, the log before we go messing with anyone else's speck, right, in the eye. All right, so deal with what you got to deal with first. And then go to your brother, Go to your sister. This is often what the discipline of the Lord looks like on a practical day-to-day level, all right? Church discipline gets a really bad rap, and it's a really scary term. In healthy churches, church discipline mainly takes place by a brother going to a brother, a sister going to a sister, and saying, hey, I love you. Um, I see God's grace working in your life, but, but, but I see this that I'm concerned I see this thing, and I'm concerned you're missing out on experiencing and enjoying the grace of God in your life. Can I walk with you through this? And can we together pursue peace and holiness? And those are sometimes really painful and uncomfortable conversations to to have. But if they are motivated by love, that is what is needed for healing. That is what is needed for us to be a people who are pursuing peace and holiness of enjoying and experiencing the grace of God in our lives. Church, the discipline of the Lord brings healing. Don't fight it. Don't delay it. We must pursue peace and holiness right now. This is God's grace to us right now. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness whether it's him correcting us, protecting us, teaching us, or training us, we must remember that we are his children. His discipline is motivated by love, and it is for our good.